everybody. Welcome back to A Bit of Fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. It's episode 19. This is the last episode of the season dedicated to a specific movie. We'll have another one on Friday that's kind of a wrap-up in conclusion to this first journey. Um, But this one I've been eyeing for a while. It was one that I know I saw as a child, but I have not watched in a very, very, very long time. And then it was actually requested by a listener, so I made sure to keep it on the list. So thank you again, Emily, for listening and for recommending The Black Cauldron. A quick reminder that if you want to watch along with me, there's a printable copy of the challenge list. Challenge meaning watching 48 animated Disney movies over the course of the summer. The list is available on my newsletter, justkeepswimming.substack.com or in the show notes. There's a new issue of the newsletter each week where I talk about pop culture and life lessons and whatnot. You can subscribe to make sure you don't miss the conversation. Um, It will just get delivered directly to that inbox, so you're never going to miss it. I might temporarily cut back on the frequency of the newsletter, so it might not be each week for a little bit, so I can get caught up on content. Most of what I've shared in the newsletter so far has been content that I wrote for a potential first draft of a book, and I've used all of that now, so I just need to get caught up. It's been hard coming up with original content since I've been consuming a lot of pop culture and a lot of Disney, but I'm not doing it as much as I did during quarantine when I wrote all the original pieces. Um, So, but it would still be great if you want to sign up that way. When I do drop a new issue, you'll get it right in your inbox. So the story, we're going to do some content specifically on this particular movie. It's not one of the the Disney staples. It came out in 1985, and it's kind of one of the lesser knowns unless you really grew up in that era watching all of the Disney movies. So I thought we'd spend some time kind of setting the scene, providing some background info, which um, as we've discussed a lot in the season, <laughs> Disney can be horrible at accomplishing. So what does this mean? Research. Well, some light internet searching that can help us better understand Taryn, the Horde King, and the brouhaha over the cauldron. So this isn't like a deep dive like you'll get, but it'll hopefully give us a good understanding of the Black Cauldron and some of the troubles that Disney experienced while making it. So context, this particular story is based on the fantasy series by Lloyd Alexander, known as the Chronicles of Prydain. They came out in the 60s. It was one of the first high fantasy series to hit the market by an American that could potentially rival Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. So everybody knew Lord of the Rings. Um, It was just really starting to gain popularity in the 60s. Um, And this was one that actually kind of rivaled that a little bit, which it had to be an influence uh, Lloyd had to be influenced by Tolkien. At at the very least, the Disney adaptation is influenced by The Lord of the Rings in some interesting ways. The Black Cauldron is actually book two in the series. Um, The movie squishes together a couple of the volumes, sort of, making for some rushed world building and a horrible lack of character development. As I went back to look at the timeline of releases up until 1985, for the most part, there were a few original tales in there and a few based on poems. Disney had focused on properties that were well-known and beloved and, you know, fairy tales and children's stories that were familiar and accessible. And reading up on the Chronicles of Prydain, and I admit I have not read them, the story is fairly familiar. A young boy wanting to be a hero, he finds himself in the middle of a battle between good and evil. It's a buildings Roman, the hero's journey. So yeah, familiar, but the setting is odd. And so this is where I kind of was surprised that they decided to take this property and adapt it. The The villain is kind of non-existent, to be completely honest, and the name's terribly confusing and frustrating to try to follow. I read somewhere that it was based on Welsh folklore, and, and the Welsh use a 
a lot of consonants in every single word that they come up with. So as a person who often had to change a name while reading, because I would get stuck on how to pronounce a name, and if I couldn't figure it out right, it would just take me completely out of the story. So I ended up just having to change for instance, I for the longest time couldn't say Hermione. And so I called like Sally or something just because I needed the consistency as I read and to not get stopped by it. I could somehow mentally make myself say Sally instead of Hermione. But thank goodness I learned how to say Hermione. So it was just, it seemed an odd choice. And I know that What's hard about this too is that there is a lot going on in this movie and you can definitely tell that information was left out as it always ends up happening when they do an adaptation of a book series. We're not seeing the full scope of Alexander's fantastical world. In a 2020 article on Collider.com, the article was titled, How the Black Cauldron Nearly Killed Disney Animation. The author of the article, Drew Taylor, says that Disney wrestled with how to condense Alexander's sprawling saga into a single film, combining multiple storylines and cutting down a cast that included over 30 major characters. And you can, you can tell. It shows. The article is fascinating, though, and goes on to tell the story about the turmoil between the old animators who had worked directly with Walt and the new guard with progressive ideas. They knew they needed to bring in this new group of Disney of animators so that the Disney Animation Studio wouldn't kind of die. And so they did that, but nobody could see eye to eye. And um, there were arguments about direction the movie should go and how things should look and uh it, it was just, it was really interesting. And you know that there has to be those growing pains in companies, especially ones that have this strong foundation with the person, the creative behind everything. And when that person is gone, how to continue going. And luckily they have come out of that, thank goodness. Have you read any of the books? Are they worth a read? I'm, I might give them a try. Give me a thumbs up if you've read them and you think I should read them. That feels like a good amount of backstory. Set on a book series, adapted by a book series. They had some arguments about how the animation should look. You know, let's let's get into these things. Let's go. But first, an overly simplified summary of Disney's animated feature, The Black Cauldron. A boy who cares for pigs and longs to be a knight finds himself on an unexpected journey to find a dangerous cauldron to keep it out of the clutches of an evil ruler who wants to raise a dead army and take over the kingdom. That was pretty concise. I think that was pretty good. Are you ready for the list? Let's just dive in. Number one, John Huston? Houston? I don't really know how to pronounce his name. Voice the narration at the beginning, which is really exciting for me. His voice, though, will forever be that of Gandalf in the 1977 animated version of The Hobbit. Oh, it just He has a very distinct voice, and once you hear it, you can't not hear it, if that makes any sense. It's quite a dark backstory that he gives in the narration, and also, incidentally, very Tolkien-esque again. There's an evil king so powerful that he was thrown alive into a crucible. This His spirit was then kind of captured in the form of a black cauldron. And much like the One Ring, it remained hidden for generations. Number two, then we're immediately immediately in a quaint forest at a small peaceful looking farm that could deaf be the Shire. <laughs> we are introduced to Dalbin, a strange name, an old man with a cat who appears to be the caretaker of a hard-headed young man eager for adventure. They care for pigs or just one pig. They call them the, you know, pig farmers, but there's only one pig there. 
And Dalbin tells his ward, Taryn, the young man, to go feed Henwin the pig. Um, and it kind of makes it sound like this is a star pig. This is Henwin, Henwin. Well, it always, it's always Henwin. <laughs> so this, this boy is just very aghast about this pig and having to deal with him, apparently. And then Dalbin says, you know, maybe one day I'll tell you about why the pig is so important. Making it sound like years from now, right? Well, apparently not. Give it three minutes and he's going to spill the beans and put this magical pig's power to use. Yes, this pig is magic. But guess what? Surprise, surprise, there's zero explanation of how this cute little pig got its powers or how it was discovered it had powers in the first place. Anything would have helped, Disney storytellers. Anything would have helped. It just, it, it, it fascinates me, a magical pig. I did not, did not remember that and did not see it coming. Number three, so it turns out Henwin, he can see the future, which was again, a little unexpected. And he can reveal the whereabouts of the cauldron that houses the spirit of the evil dude. So this is not just like Dalabin said, this is no ordinary pig. This pig is clairvoyant. Um, so just like Sauron can see Frodo when he wears the one ring, the horned king can now find Henwin since his powers have been activated. This really does start off a lot like the Fellowship of the Ring. You have a young man who is given a valuable item that the antagonist of the story wants and is told to flee his home and wait for his mentor to find him. <laughs> but I suppose it's just a familiar way to start the hero's journey, the inciting incident that forces him into the unknown where his courage and intellect will be tested, or lack thereof if you're just a small boy and your brain isn't fully functioning. And you know what? The plot never really gets old, though. There's something, I don't know, um, noble and honest about the hero's journey that I've always kind of loved. Someone forced out of their comfort zone to face life-changing obstacles in the hopes of making the world a better place and defeating an evil force. I think a small part of me has always just kind of wondered if I would have what it takes. How would I react if I found myself in the hero role of some epic adventure? I can tell you that I would last about five minutes because I'm very clumsy um, and I get into a lot of accidents where I hurt myself and no one else. So it's not like I would even take out the baddie. I, it would just be me taking myself out and maybe the magical pig. As for Taryn, uh, I'm not sure I'm a fan. I miss the humble, thoughtful character of Wart in The Sword of the Stone. I think I was almost anticipating that personality. And yeah, yeah, I know they're two different characters and two very different stories. But I don't find myself rooting for him right off the bat. Number four, who exactly is the Horned King? What's his story? How did he come to power? Is the king that is talked about in the prologue, is that him? Is this a, a horcrux situation and somehow he's trying to get his spirit back? Why is he horned? Was he in an accident and that's why his face is a skull and usually hidden? I mean, there are a lot of unanswered questions that I'm, I'm very curious actually to read the book to see if some of that is explained. During our first glimpse of the Horned King, they do a nice job though of using music to build tension. Um, would never have known that he was voiced by John Hurt if I hadn't looked it up. And I, and I know John Hurt's voice. I mean, he's in everything. He's the Jim Henson storyteller. He's the doctor, the war doctor. He's, <laughs> you know, he's Ollivander. That's a voice that I am very familiar with. And so it, it kind of surprised me that I, I couldn't identify young John Hurt's voice. 
he has a familiar, the Horn King has a familiar lust for power that we see in other Disney movies, but the addition of the word worship was new. Um, he is telling his minions, I'm going to find this cauldron and I'm going to bring back this dead army so that everyone will worship me. I, this idea of becoming godlike does actually make him a little scarier, I guess. Number five. So now we have Taryn, the young boy, and Henwin, the magical pig, and they have been tasked to head into a hidden cot towards a hidden cottage on the, the edge of the forest to keep this pig safe. So he's supposed to wait there for Dalbin to show up. But, it, I mean, it takes him no time at all, no time at all to lose this pig. And, th- and that's not a surprise. Really, he's, he's a teen boy. He's easily distracted. Then we meet Gurgi. Ugh, ugh. Another cutesy character with a weird voice who actually sounds a lot like Schmeagol um, from The Lord of the Rings, both the cartoon and, and, the, and the movie. I just completely blanked on that actor's name, but he does an amazing job as Gollum and Schmeagol. And while I don't, I don't necessarily like him yet, Taron is a bit of a bully, um, which isn't helping and does a lot of threatening to beat Gurgi up. I mean, he's threatening him with a stick all over an apple. He, he offers up an apple thinking it's Henwin hidden and it's this Gurgi character. And then he's threatening to hit him with a stick over a, an apple. And then he turns right around and starts interrogating him about Henwin. Like, nope, still not a fan. Dude, you can't just be demanding like that and then expect me to help you out. Number six, it also doesn't take long for the bad guys to find the pig. I mean, so quick, so quick. They they send down some dragons with these really big teeth to capture Henwin, and they bring her to the Horned King's dark and foreboding castle, which Taryn immediately enters without any trouble at all. All of this begs the question, why would you send a young boy off on his, no, his own with such an important task? A child's brain isn't fully cooked until their early 20s. I mean, bad decisions and distractions are bound to happen. Why didn't Dalbin go with him? He didn't seem to be doing anything else, and he didn't give any indication that there was another task he had to complete. Again, maybe that's in the book, but Disney gives us nothing. Let's just say Henwin had still gotten away from what, from Dalbin and Taryn if they had been together. Surely Dalbin would have had enough sense to keep Taryn from heading directly into the castle, causing a ruckus and eventually getting caught. Come on, dude. You know this kid is eager for grandeur and fame, for heroics. Dalbin really isn't the mentor, the intelligent man that you are hoping that this mentor would be. (laughs) Number seven, let's take a brief moment to talk about the magic sword. So Taryn is captured and forced to activate the pig's powers. Just shy of showing the Horn King where the cauldron is located, Taryn and Henwin escape. Um, and to save the clan vo- clairvoyant swine, Taryn like, just tosses her over the castle wall into the moat, hoping she can swim, I guess, before being recaptured and sent to the dungeons, where he is immediately, immediately found by another prisoner. He is in there two seconds. This Princess Ellenwee and her magical flying orb. Again, that's a very complicated name. I even had to to remind myself, spell it out how it sounds, because it does not look like that, the spelling. Ellen Wee. They then walk around the castle like they own the place, and they stumble upon this burial chamber of the king who actually built the castle. And then nosy Taryn, he steals a sword from the crypt. He's like, oh, this must be the king, the hero. And he just steals his sword, which I just think is bad form. And it just so happens that this sword, which 
has been under the horned king's nose for who knows how long is magical. So Taryn just starts swinging the sword around and it sets fire to everything it touches. How did the Horn King not know this thing existed? If he took over the castle from the original owner, he must have buried the guy, which I think was very noble, weirdly, of him, and thus he had to have found the sword. How was it just down there for the taking? Number eight. So Taryn, the princess, and some random musician who was also in the dungeons escaped the castle. They're they're just, they're very gifted, these three, and they're on the hunt for Henwin. They need to find Henwin when they stumble upon Gurgi again. He just randomly appears um, when they stop to fix the musician's pants, where Ellen Wee miraculously finds a needle and thread. I mean, that is a mystery. Where was this needle and thread hiding? And then they promptly get sucked into this underground chamber populated by little creatures with antenna known as the fair folk. And this was definitely had to have been a sequence that had a lot of it cut during production because you see them for about a minute and a half, two minutes, enough to say, hey, look, we've got Henwin. They had Henwin all along, guys. Um, and, and, that's, and that's it. <laughs> These little beings, make, they just make no sense. And there's no consequence except that Henwin is miraculously there. I'm, I'm not sure why they were in the movie. One of them is supposed to serve as a guide to fight the cauldron here in a second, but he actually doesn't do anything except be cranky, so... Number nine, it does seem like a very unlikely group that we've got now to go hunting for the cauldron and destroy it before the Horn King arrives. About as unlikely as two small hobbits going after, you know, going towards Mount Doom to, to destroy the One Ring. A boy who's not a great thinker, a terrified old man, a princess who had been stolen, a weird little hairy creature, and a very angry little member of the Fair Folk. They just don't seem destined for success um, right off the bat. Number 10, they decide to go to Morva, where the Fair Folk King believes the cauldron is located. It's a, a little cottage in a swamp inhabited by these three witches, one of which is very busty and flirtatious. I mean, in a borderline inappropriate way, especially when this random musician turns into a frog and he gets stuck in her cleavage. It was a little uncomfortable, to be honest. They really like just zoom in on that. Ugh, I don't know. The witches, they trick Taryn into trading the magic sword for the cauldron, only to find out that the cauldron is indestructible, except if a living being climbs into it by his or her own free will, which means certain death. So they think they've got the better end of the deal. These people, there's nothing they can do with the cauldron. There's no powers they can pull from it unless somebody sacrifices their life. And now these witches, they have the magical sword, the one thing that could potentially help them against the Horned King. Number 11, the Horned King's gain of ruffians catches up with the little band of heroes really quickly and once again captures them along with the cauldron that the witch is just left sitting there next to these these people um, and the horn king actually tosses a dead body into the cauldron which activates the army of the dead and a scene that is very reminiscent of the arc opening scene in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's this green mist that comes and you almost want to look at them who our band of heroes are tied up with their hands above their heads and you want to yell, look away, look away or shut your eyes, don't look at it because it looks very familiar. Which the witches left out this magical detail that that could happen. They talk about a, a live person willingly going into the cauldron but they don't say anything about this dude tossing in a dead body and, and bringing to life a dead army. 
Number 12, in a surprising twist, Gurgi, oh, our, our hairy little fellow who's kind of annoying, he willingly jumps into the cauldron of his own free will, destroying the army of the dead, which happens very quickly. There's no, like, final battle or anything. Gurgi just hops in and everything dies. But finally, a weird, cutesy little creature that does something heroic to move the plot along. I will give Gurgi that. His, his voice is annoying, but I will give him that. I still found him annoying. <laughs> but it, it does show a bit of character growth with a little personality, this courage to sacrifice himself for the good of the others. Then the cauldron becomes a vacuum cleaner, kind of like the black hole that appears at the end of the 1980s comedy horror movie, The Monster Squad, that sucks all the, the monsters back into the black hole. This, the cauldron becomes this sucking tool that brings, you know, pulls the dead army back in and the Horn King into its depths. And then it just kind of sinks back into the ground, taking the castle with it. But it's not gone for good because it'll pop back up here in a second. Number 13, which maybe makes the Horned King the worst Dis Disney villain ever. Not because he failed. I mean, all the other ones do that as well eventually because that's how Disney movies work. But because he was only in the movie for like a total of four minutes and accomplished absolutely nothing. The army got nowhere. He didn't cause one bit of a fuss. His evil reign never started. No one worshipped him except his own little villainous minion guy, Creeper. And no one was e the wiser that of, of his evil intentions. Like his evil didn't spread into the kingdom in any way. Unlike where you see in Tolkien, the effects that it had on the Shire or could potentially have on the Shire. I mean, they ended up in Helm's Deep and there was a battle. So it, you saw the battle traveling throughout the kingdoms. Here, nothing, nothing. He's just like, I want to be worshiped. And then he's, he's gone. <laughs> Number 14, the cauldron, like I mentioned, just kind of pops back up in the swamp and the three witches reappear. They're just about to take the cauldron back because like, haha, see, you don't need it. We'll take it back. When the useless musician man comes in handy and reminds the witches that they only deal in trades. That's how they had gotten the cauldron in the first place, trading the sword. So they offer Taryn the sword back. He's like, here, fine. Here's the sword. We'll take the cauldron. But in another moment of growth, Taryn says that the only thing he wants is Gurgi back. And they're saying that's not possible. And um, they, and yet they perform some kind of magic, which directly goes against the magic they had spoken about earlier because they said no one would return after climbing into the, the cauldron. And they bring Gurgi back to the bunch. And so in other words, magic is fickle and doesn't make any sense. Have you heard me say that before? You might have heard me say that before. <laughs> Number 15. And then everyone lives happily ever after. And in the literal blink of an eye, they're standing in a lush forest. I mean, they were literally standing in the swamp. The camera turns just a bit. It's in the same moment. And when it pans back to them, they're in a lush forest. Maybe the greatest moment of magic in the whole movie. And Dalbin is back with Henwin. Dalbin, the wise mentor who did absolutely nothing the entire movie. Yep, I, I don't feel that like they did the first couple books in this series justice. There's just a lot left out, a lot unexplained. Kind of confusing, to be honest. A bittersweet moment as we talk about the final life lesson of the season. What is your motivation? What leads you to do the things that you do, drives your ambition, and guides your heart? So we have a boy who is living a peaceful and quiet life with his 
caretaker and an adorable pink pig. But this boy wasn't content with the life he was given. He wanted adventure. He wanted fame. He wanted an opportunity to prove himself. Things that aren't inherently bad, but with the wrong motivation, aren't always good either. Taryn's motivation came from a place of envy and greed. He could close his eyes and imagine himself as the hero of the story. It was that envy, that greed in a sense, that continuously got him into trouble and put him directly in harm's way. His envious daydreaming made him lose track of the valuable pig who was then captured. It was his envious greed that led him to grab the sword, and without the sword, he would have had nothing to trade with the witches for the cauldron. The cauldron then wouldn't have been discovered and fallen into the clutches of the Horned King, which almost set off the destruction of Prydain by a dead army. It was only after he learned about true courage, sacrifice, and friendship from surprisingly Gurgi that he started to make some smart decisions, that his motivation finally aligned with his good intentions. He let go of the envy and in return was reunited with his friend. So what are your motivations? If you're unsure, check in with those around you. Pause from time to time to make sure your actions align with your intentions. And maybe don't send a young boy whose brain is still cooking to be the sole caretaker of a very important clamvoyant swine. Teenagers are amazing. Oh, they're amazing. And they're intelligent and they're resilient creatures, but just may not be ready for the emotional endurance needed in tense situations all of the time. The final wrap up. My favorite scene? Uh, probably when Taryn is carrying his hefty pink pig around the castle after he's broken in to try to save Henwin. And in an escape attempt, he just kind of tosses him over the castle wall. I found that kind of funny. He's like, here, pig, I hope you can swim and just kind of tosses it over. My favorite song? Oh, sadly, this is one of those unfun animated features without a song. Maybe I would have liked it better if if it had been a musical and there was something I could sing along to. And favorite quote? Oh, I just adore forceful men. The busty wish, which was so flirty that it was a little uncomfortable, but she also was cracking me up. She reminded me a lot. Some of the artwork looks very similar to Madame Mim from The Sword and the Stone. Um, And also some of it oddly looked familiar, like some of the 90s cartoons that I grew up watching, something like uh, He-Man or something. it just it had a very specific look to it. I guess you can really kind of see how that new animation coming in that became the animation you're familiar with into the 90s. It was interesting. As for the rewatchability, you know, maybe after a read through of the books to compare. On its own, probably not. I just, I didn't love any of the characters enough to watch again. I, I wasn't rooting for them enough. So what did you think of The Black Cauldron? Have you read the books? Does that make a difference? How does the movie compare? Is it on your list of favorite Disney animated movies? Let me know. I would love to hear. A quick rundown of what else I've watched. I made it through Bolt, which is fine. Nothing spectacular or memorable, but it's fine. I watched Dumbo. My nephew loves elephants and is especially fond of ones that fly. This one does have some problems, especially towards the end of the movie. And it really kind of bothers me how all of these elderly female elephants are really kind of bullies towards Dumbo. They're very mean. I mean, full out like pretending he's not there, ghosting him. I, I don't know. I, I Dumbo's cute though, him and his big ears. And I'm in the middle of Pinocchio. Also problematic with a lot of kind of scary visuals. Pleasure Island is intense. 
Hopefully we'll finish that one up soon. Only a handful left to go on my summer challenge list. I think I've got this. I'm very excited. But that is it for today. We've got one episode left in season one to wrap up the discussion about Disney animated movies, at least for the time being. I'm sure I'll return to them again someday because I just, I watch a lot of Disney. Thank you again so much for listening, really. It's so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. That way, when season two releases sometime in September, it will just automatically pop up wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review the podcast, but only if it's nice, please. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as A Bit of Fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today, and I will see you next time.